In September, we started a series simply entitled, Follow Me. Looking at and considering the words of Jesus as he's called his disciples to enter into a journey with him. A journey not only in belief, but a journey in obedience. As Jesus would call them not just to believe in him, but to believe enough to follow him. To literally go where he would go, to listen to what he said, to watch what he did. These are the stories we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the things that we pick up on as we read through those books is that in Jesus' ministry here on earth, a huge part of it, in fact, a primary part of it, was that Jesus walked and intentionally built his disciples that he spent the bulk of his time preparing them, preparing them to do something, that it wasn't just about them being saved. It wasn't merely about salvation. That is, he wasn't just calling them to be saved and then leaving them alone. No, what Jesus does is he's trained them up and then he would send them out. He would save them and redeem them and then send them out after those who needed to be saved and redeemed. We see that consistently in the Gospels, that he would send them out and then he'd regather them and train them some more. And that, that was the call of Jesus. That still is the call of Jesus, to follow him. And that's the call before you and me still. Jesus invites us to follow him. While in the time and while we read the Gospels that looked like he was walking from place to place and you were hearing him teach and watching him perform miracles, we don't live in ancient Israel and Jesus isn't physically standing here with us. Rather, we live in America and we live in 2018. And so for us to follow Jesus looks differently in a lot of ways, but similar in others. For we can still watch his life. And we can still listen to his words and we can still see his miracles. And we do that by spending time in his word, walking with him in his word, studying and his teachings, studying his life and seeking obedience. That's why throughout this whole series, I've been pushing us into the gospel of Matthew to be reading it, to be watching his life. Because if you want me to be very frank with you, and I will. It's tough to say that you're following Jesus if, in fact, you're not following him. What I mean by that is if you're not studying his life, if you're not reading his word, if you're not seeking obedience, you're not following him. Listen to this for a moment. When Jesus gathered his disciples together and he sent them out, imagine for a moment that Andrew and Peter decide not to go. What if they skip the Sermon on the Mount? Or more than that, what if they don't? What if they just show up to hear Jesus speak, but they never do any of the things that Jesus calls them to do? Would they have still been his followers? Would they have still been his disciples? Is that the book that God wanted us to have? A a, a nice book of teachings that we could look at and go, that's really wise. That's really encouraging. Or did, in fact, he give us a book that we could actually, literally, and practically follow? Now, listen to me carefully. I'm not trying to call into question whether or not you're a believer. That question entirely hinges on your reality of living and claim in Romans 10, 9, which says, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a salvation verse that points to you knowing and believing in Jesus. And that's not the question I'm trying to get at. The question I'm trying to get at is beyond just believing in Jesus to are you following Jesus? Are you seeking to know him, to walk with him in his word, and to be transformed by your knowledge of him that will come from his word? Because make no mistake about it, if you read from the Gospels to the book of Acts, you would find that his disciples were absolutely transformed from being a group of people who watched from the sidelines to being the main characters in the divine plan of God to bring his name to the world. And can I just tell you, that's God's plan for your life. To move you from the sidelines to being the main characters in his divine plan to bring his name to the world. That is a full life. That, that experience, that journey, that is the abundant life that Jesus proclaims in John 10.10. It's living out the fullness of Christ. So what I'm calling you to do is to follow him to read, to study his word, to watch his life and to seek obedience to it, both in its moral implications and in its missional purpose. This series, this whole series has been a chance for us to hear Jesus say, follow me and to choose obedience. An interesting thing happened in the last week's that the world is not sure what to do with. If you've been paying attention to the news, you might have heard that American missionary John Allen Chow was killed this week. He was martyred on a remote island off of the coast of India. He went to an island to share the gospel with a small indigenous population that in reality might be the hardest group of people to reach on the planet. The Sentinelese people, I might not even say that right. It's a primitive tribe living on a small island with almost no contact with the outside world. In fact, it's against Indian law to even travel there. But Chow wanted them to hear the gospel. He wanted them to hear about Jesus, and for him it wasn't a spontaneous plan. Now, the more his story comes out, the more we find that he'd spent years working on it. So he hired some fishermen to get him close to the island, And from their fishing boat, he carried a canoe, which he took to the island. The fishermen have reported that on his first trip in, he was shot several times with arrows. That's his first day. So he goes back again. The fishermen then report that he did not return. They saw the people on the island dragging his body on the beach. You can read more of that story online somewhere. There's a good article on Christianity Today. I bring this up because if you listen to the narrative of the world, the narrative that you'll see in secular news and for the most part on social media, and the narrative that you hear from even some well-meaning Christians, you'll hear things like, what was he doing there? What was he about? You know, he broke the law to travel there. Shouldn't a Christian obey the law? 
You hear things like, shouldn't he be leaving those people alone? Didn't they deserve to live in their happiness and their peace? Clearly, they wanted to be left alone. Do you know he might have exposed them to diseases they'd never had before? And most of them end something like this. He sure got what he deserved. Now, I certainly don't know all of his motives or his strategies or his missiology, but this I can attest to. He went because he believed he was being obedient to Jesus. He went because he was following Jesus. I've read enough of his life and his missions experience to at least attest to that. The day before he was killed, he wrote a letter to his parents. Listen to his words. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this. Now keep in mind, this is after being shot multiple times with arrows. You know he doesn't think this is going to end well. But I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. You see a picture of a man willing to do anything that Christ might be proclaimed. He's following Jesus. How can I say that? Because he's doing what Jesus calls us to do. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 28, the last chapter in the gospel of Matthew as we close out this series. If you're not there yet, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. And you should know by context that in Matthew 27, Jesus is crucified. That he dies on the cross for your sins and for mine. And in the first nine verses of the 28th chapter of Matthew, we also see that he's resurrected. So what we're going to be looking at this morning is a post-resurrection experience. One of his appearances. If you pull together all the accounts found in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and if we include Paul's summary found in 1 Corinthians 15 you would find that Jesus had at least 11 appearances appearing to all of his disciples, appearing appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other women and at least 500 other people. And of all of these 11 appearances, only one did he plan in advance. Only one did he make an appointment for. Now, this is an extraordinary reality if you lean into your text, because I want you to consider this. Turn back a page or two to Matthew 26. This is immediately following the Last Supper. And in Matthew 26, verse 30 and following, this is what it says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now we're going to come back and comment back on that verse because Jesus knew That as soon as the next moments happened, all of his followers would run. They would flee. But in verse 32, Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now I point this out to you because he's not even been arrested yet. He's not even been crucified. And he's already forecasting to his disciples that he will be resurrected which is to say he's in total control of this moment, which is to say that nobody crucified him against his will. He forecast his resurrection and he makes an appointment with him. I will go before you to Galilee. We're going to meet in Galilee after I come back. That's what he says. 
And in Matthew 28, verse 7, come back a couple pages. The Marys have gone to the tomb only to find Jesus not there. And the angel tells them that God sends an angel to inform these women. This is one of the things the angel says. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Jesus sends an angel, says, go to the disciples and remind them we have an appointment. Remind them that I told them that not only would I die, but I'd be raised from the dead, and then we'd meet in Galilee. He wants them to be reminded, we've got an appointment, you've got to make it. Three verses later, in verse 10, Jesus reiterates the message by himself. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid to the Marys. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So Jesus has a message after he's resurrected, and his message is consistently, let's go to Galilee. Let's have a meeting. I need my disciples. And it's extraordinary to consider how often Jesus is putting this before his people. This is going to be a really big deal. It's really important. So important that I've got to let you know what's going to happen before I die. So in verse 16, we see the meeting. It tells us that. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Remembering there's 11 because Judas is no longer with them. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They're gathered together in the place that Jesus said, hey, after I die, after I'm resurrected, let's get together. It's telling you this is the appointment. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. They worshiped, but some doubted. Now, I point that back out to you because I want you to keep back in mind the Matthew 26 passage where Jesus said, you're all going to scatter. You're going to run away. You know why these guys doubt? Because they're not sure of Jesus' response. The last time they were with him, Jesus said, hey, you're going to run. And they did. They pansied out. They fleed. You know, the word doubted here might better be translated as hesitated. They didn't know what he was going to say. They didn't know how he would respond. And yet you will see as we continue in this message that Jesus doesn't discipline them. He restores them and he commissions them. He wants them to know that they are still his plan. Listen to what he says, verse 18. And when Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is to say, from the mouth of Jesus, I am completely sovereign. I am over everything in heaven and on earth, and I can command anything. He's got absolute authority which is what gives him permission to say what he says next. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end 
of the age. Friends, this is what it means to follow Jesus. What he says here. Jesus says, I've showed you for three years. I modeled it for you. I've walked with you. I've taught you. I've sent you out. I've regathered you. I've shown you what this looks like. And now I'm commissioning you to go and do it. Go and make disciples. And history and tradition confirms for us that all 11 of them were absolutely obedient to that calling. They were obedient to this commissioning. They followed through on following him. So the question before us is what will we do with it? Will we be obedient to it? Because this passage isn't given to the church as a whole, as if it's the building's job. And this passage is not given just to missionaries, for they didn't exist yet. Neither did the church, for that matter. It was given to followers of Jesus Christ. People who he said, follow me. Take on my example. Take on my model. I want you to become like me. So what does this look like? Well, if you study the passage, you would find that there's one command supported by three participles. I'll nerd out only a little. And I'll make it basic. That is to say that there's one thing that you're called to do, one thing you're commanded to do, one thing you must carry out in order to be obedient And you accomplish it by doing the other three. The command in this passage is to make disciples. You want to know what that looks like? I'll give you two answers. First, if you've been reading the book of Matthew as we've walked through this series, you've watched Jesus do it. You've seen the model. That's one of the reasons why we're to be called to the text over and over and over and over and over and over again. My time in Oklahoma City, I got to sit down with a lot of people. One of the people I sat down with was talking about how, you know, they read the Bible once and it was really encouraging to them and they were thinking about going back to it. Well, when did you finish? When I was in college. This is a 50-year-old. So you finished it when you were 20 and you've never picked it up again? No. Got a lot out of it the first time, though. Might go back. This is God's holy word. God has revealed himself to us. He's given us his heart. He's given us his purpose. He's shown us who he is, and we're to be attentive to it. This is God's revelation. This book tells us what following him looks like. The second thing I would tell you, to add some more clarity other than just reading the book and watching the model, is to say that if you need more clarity, Jesus gives you three participles. He gives you the three hows of how this passage should work. First, Jesus says, go. Now, that doesn't mean you need a boat or a plane and you must go far away. 
although it clearly might. There is a reality that in our church, all of us should at least at some point wrestle with the question, God, are you calling me to forsake everything to to move somewhere to proclaim your word to your people? We all must wrestle with that. And I say that to 18-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds. When I was in Papua New Guinea a couple of years ago, I sat down with some missionaries who were 80. You know how long they'd been on the field? Three years. That's how they were spending their retirement. They were in a guest house for missionaries on the field who just needed some hospitality. It doesn't matter how old you are or what your gifting mix is. God can use your abilities for his glory in the world. God may very well be calling some of us to go. But that's not necessarily what go means here. What go means here is it's pointing to a lifestyle that has to be carried out by his followers wherever you live, whether that's Fargo, Moorhead, or Papua New Guinea. The construction of the passage in Greek, nerding out again, puts the go and the make disciples together. It's a participle of attendant attendant circumstance. It's all on nerdy for you. But what it tells you is that the participle go carries an imperative force, which is to say that they go together. You see this construction in Matthew 9.13, go and learn. In Matthew 28.7, go and tell. In Luke 5.14, go and show. In Luke 16.6, sit down and write. What it communicates is that one action cannot be taken without doing the other, which is to say You cannot make disciples passively. You can't make them sitting on the couch. You can't make them without a great level of intentionality, without some great semblance of purpose, the very purpose that Jesus wants to instill in you by reading his Gospels. So Jesus gives us these other participles. We're to be intentional. Jesus says, baptize and teach. And friends, these aren't pastor words. These aren't elder words. These are words for believers, words for followers. It's why it was the delight of my heart when we baptized a month or so ago, and we had three different guys baptizing. It's not my job to baptize. Any of you can baptize. And in fact, any of you should be baptizing people. There ought to be people in our lives that we're professing the gospel to, who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and in obedience decide to be baptized. And when they think, golly, who should baptize me? The answer is you, right? That's obedience to this passage. Teach. It's not a pastor word. Listen to me, the end of your faith experience and inviting people in your life to know Jesus isn't, I hate to blow your mind on this one, isn't, hey, come to church with me. I mean, that's fine, but it's a far cry from the reality of you entering into somebody's life and telling them what Jesus has done in your life. Your testimony to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers is way greater than anything I'm going to say to them in a public setting. 
because they know you. Jesus says, baptize, teach, and go. All in this process of making disciples. All in this process of believers in Jesus Christ who desire to follow him, to be obedient to his word, going out and being intentional and building relationships and sharing Christ and baptizing and teaching. Josh McDowell wrote in his book, Growing True Disciples, a book he wrote with George Barna, that statistically less than 5% of believers will ever share their faith with anyone. Less than 5% of believers in the West will ever share their faith with anyone. I mean, go crazy and just try it once and beat the stat. Friends, I'm not calling you to anything crazy. I'm calling you to be obedient to what Jesus has done for us and to us and wants to do through us. I'm wanting to remind you, and I regularly remind you, that you're the only person in your life connected to everyone in your life. Which is to say that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know, you need to see, and you need to understand that Christ has intentionally placed you in your home on purpose and in your family on purpose. Christ has sent you into your family. Many of us are coming off Thanksgiving gatherings. Don't know about you, but not all of my family are believers. Do you know what my role is there? It's not to decide who has the best gravy. It's to be a living, active witness to the reality of Jesus Christ so that the people in my family see Jesus Christ. And that's not just true in my family. It's true in my cul-de-sac. That we need to see and really at a deep level understand that Jesus has sent us into our neighborhood. And he's sending us into our work. And he's sending us into the places we shop and to the places where we eat, and the places where we go to have fun. Jesus is sending us out as his commissioned followers to baptize, to teach, and to make disciples. Friends, that's the thrust of this passage. And to be fair, that's the thrust of this whole series. As we close, I want to give you a couple of really practical applications, and I'll close with a quote. First, I want to ask you to be praying over the people in your life that you see regularly. Now, you could define regularly any way you want. Regularly can mean daily. It can mean weekly. It can mean every six weeks I run into the same guy. You'll note that there are people in your life who you regularly run into. The other day I'm in Sam's. I look up and I see this guy. I'm thinking, I know this guy. Who is this guy? It occurs to me he's the UPS guy that drops off the mail at the church. That's how I know him. 
I should start a conversation with him. Why? Because I see him regularly. Clearly, he's in my life for a purpose and not just to bring me mail. Why wouldn't I offer him something? Second, as we start praying around and through the people we see regularly, we need to start building time in our lives to have intentional conversations. Now, I'm not saying anything deep. You don't just walk up to a guy and go, Jesus. Hey, brother, believe in Jesus and run off. I'm saying, I believe the gospel, I believe the Bible calls us to build relationships with people. To get to know them. They're far more than just projects. We should get into their lives a little bit. Starts with easy, simple questions. Do you see the Bison game? How do you think about the defense? How are your kids? How's your wife? How's the family? What do you think of the weather? You hope it snows. No, me neither. Build a relationship with people so that they know you love them. So that they know that they're cared about. So that somebody, like a believer in Jesus Christ, regularly asks them, how are you doing? In a way that just cares about them. And then finally, out of an increasing relationship, be willing to talk about what Jesus is doing into your life. You know, it's hard to just bring up Jesus. There is that moment where you have to enter Jesus into a conversation, and you just got to know it's always awkward. Always. And one of the ways you get around it always being awkward is just talking about what he's doing in your life. Man, Jesus has been so gracious to my family lately. He's just been so kind. You know, I was really struggling with something. I was, I was reading God's Word, and it just said this, and it was just, it just so encouraging to me. And you're just opening up little gaps. You're opening up little windows where somebody starts to see something, and you, oh, he reads the Bible. Oh, he, he finds something in Jesus. Oh, he, find, he has hope in Jesus. You're just starting to build a relationship and you're starting to introduce the reality that Jesus is trustworthy, that he's good, that he's faithful, that he's these immutable characteristics. You don't ever have to say that. But he's these things to me. And you know what happens as you live your life? People begin to share their trials, their struggles, their pain. You can say, you know, I went through something like that a couple years ago. Man, Jesus was so gracious. And he begins to become more and more a part of our conversations. That's what it looks like. It's not this complex strategy. There's not like a ten point. There's not four questions you ask every time. Just go and love people. Build relationships with them and talk about Jesus. beginning of the message, I mentioned John Chow. And I want to close with something he wrote in his final letters. He wrote at least three letters the day before he died. This is one of the things he wrote. It's an exhortation to a church. Please live your lives in obedience to whatever God has called you to do. And I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. 
the eternal lives of this tribe are at hand. And I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9 through 10 states. This is Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, that passion is what I want. That passion is what I pray for. And I pray it for me, I pray it for my family, and I'm praying it for you. That we would have that same passion to see our friends, to see our families, to see our neighbors, our coworkers, to see the nations, to see people from all tribes and tongues gathered around the throne, praising the one who saved us. We can look to our missionaries to gather those people. But there are people in your life that could be at that gathering. There are people in your life that should be at that gathering. There are people in your life who will be at that gathering. And through our obedience in Jesus Christ, we can play a small role in that. Jesus calls us to follow him. To be like him. To go and make disciples. Let me pray for us. Father, there are many days I'm ready to be in your throne. I'm ready to be in heaven. I'm ready to be at a place where there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. But Father, as long as you tarry, it's a reminder that we have work to do. We're called to build your kingdom. We're called to make disciples. It's a call that you give to all believers. It's a call you give to all of your followers. To build relationships. To proclaim Jesus Christ. To baptize. To teach. It's not a special book in the Bible for pastors and church elders where we get to do these things. It's your book you made available to all of your believers. It's a calling you've given to every last one of us, whether we're three or 97. To proclaim the truth of salvation to a world that's looking to absolutely anything to find fulfillment. Father, would you give us the boldness to proclaim the name of your son? Would you give us the strength to follow you well? And when we fall flat on our face, when we flee, as we often will, when we scatter, will you remind us 
that you didn't chastise your disciples. You confirmed them and sent them out. You don't expect perfection from us. But would you allow us to pursue an ever and ever, ever increasing faithfulness to you and to your word? Father, I look forward to to eternity to see all the names and the faces and families that are impacted because we were faithful to this call. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.